Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends and feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Lyme disease and what you need to know about it before you head outside. The Prime Minister says he's open to proposals for a B.C. refinery, even though we can't get a pipeline built. And we speak with Mayor Fred Eisenberger of Hamilton about the police's response to the Pride Festival and how they plan to solve issues in their forecourt moving forward. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Lyme disease has become uh, very prevalent in our environment, uh, so much so that health uh, units are no longer uh, testing ticks and just move straight to treatment. Uh, how big of a concern is this? How do we recognize it? What do we do? How, you know, is this like a mosquito bite? Is it worse? Let's bring in Sue Faber, registered new, uh, nurse, co-founder of Lime Hope, uh, LimeHope.ca, uh, all one word, LimeHope.ca, uh, to find out more. And Sue is with us now. Sue, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Talk about LimeHope.ca. Uh, what is that? So Lime Hope is a, a not-for-profit charitable organization which we founded a couple of years ago, specifically focused on Lyme disease. And uh, myself and uh, colleague uh, Jennifer Kravis co-founded the organization. And uh, our, our sole purpose is to provide education, outreach, to work alongside medical professionals, the general public, and others to, to notify about Lyme disease and what we can do and actions and steps that we can take to prevent, our pu- prevent the public but also help those sorry, to prevent um, more of the public from being infected with Lyme disease, but also to help those who are currently infected with Lyme disease so that they can get the care and support that they require within Canada. How serious is this? What happens? Someone gets bitten. What happens? Well, Lyme disease is um, a bacteria. It's Borrelia burgdorferi is the name of the bacteria, and it's carried by ticks, uh, most commonly the black-legged tick. And uh, what happens is um, a person can uh, be bitten by a tick and not even know that they've ever been bitten. Ticks can be as tiny as a poppy seed, and so you might not ever even see it on your body, okay? And, um, and then maybe a few days to a few weeks later, you start to develop some symptoms that feel a bit like the flu or progress to, you know, even worse, so where your heart is involved, um, Bell's palsy is another example where your face droops and from there it can you know progress and, and, and literally this organism can disseminate throughout your entire body and wreak havoc on a person. So it's a very serious disease. Um, the important uh, piece to this is that it needs to be caught and identified and treated early and uh, if you know if it's caught and treated early outcomes are wonderful. But the problem is, is there's a lot of Canadians, men, women, and children included, um, that never realized that they had a tick bite. Um, they didn't have what is known to be a, a bullseye rash, which is characteristic of Lyme disease, but certainly not in all cases of Lyme disease. And so they go on going from one doctor to the next, to the next, to the next, with these symptoms that are, um, you know, very serious, and nobody can figure it out. And uh, it's, it's, it's horrendous. And a lot of Canadians are currently suffering as a result of misdiagnosed Lyme uh, that aren't able to access care within Canada. Now that we are talking about it so often, would it not be something that doctors would frequently turn to now as uh, a cause of something like this? 
Absolutely. And I, you know, as a registered nurse, um, and also, you know, having colleagues in the medical profession, I believe, um, you know, the medical profession is taking heed of this and realizing that this needs to be part of the differential diagnosis so that when a patient comes to them with these symptoms and, you know, unsure of what's going on, that they consider Lyme disease as a possible diagnosis. Absolutely. Uh, is it possible that you could be bitten by a tick and nothing happens? Uh, yes, it is. If, if, if the tick is not carrying any, any of this bacteria or organisms, then um, you, you won't be, you know, you won't get sick from and, it. And the, so, Sorry, go ahead. Right. So, I mean, there are other um, diseases that are known to be transmitted by, by a tick. So it's not just Lyme disease. Um, there's other tick-borne infections, which include Babesia, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, um, Bartonella is another one that's of concern. So it's not just Lyme. So we have to, we have to realize that, that ticks are nature's dirty needles, and um, they can actually infect a person with multiple infections, uh, not just the Lyme bacteria. Uh, how you you talked about the bullseye uh, target looking uh, um, rash that you may get? Describe that a bit more. How do we know if we've been bitten? Well, the bullseye rash is if physicians and and nurse practitioners we know that if a patient has a bullseye rash, it's an um, erythema migrans rash. So basically, um, it's a rash that usually is at the, the the site of the tick bite, and it expands over time. It can take on the shape of a bullseye, so it's actually, you know, red in the middle with white rings. But there are also rashes that have been caused by Lyme that don't have a bullseye appearance, that are just uniformly red. Mm -hmm. So that would be um, certainly a, um, you know, a trigger for a, a, a person who has this rash, who's been bitten by a tick, to think, I need to get myself to a doctor and, and have them, um, you know, take a look and do a history and provide appropriate um, treatment and care. If, um, you, if, if you are bit and you get, you know, um, uh, um, a rash like this, will it continue or will it go away like a mosquito bite and then the disease just continue to wander through your body unknowingly? Well, these rashes can go away on their own. That has been shown in the literature. So um, they don't just remain forever. Right. Um, they, they can come and go. That has been shown. Um, but certainly a bullseye rash is, it would be something that would bring you in to your doctor to have them treat you right away. The, the concern, though, is that not everybody will exhibit a bullseye rash. Mm -hmm. And not everybody will remember the tick bite or even pull off a tick. Right. We know, we know of many Canadians who have Lyme disease who, who don't remember, including myself, who don't remember a tick bite or a bullseye rash and later on go on to develop a more chronic or persistent form of the disease. So you have been bitten. Harder. Well, I have Lyme disease, but I don't recall having been bitten by a tick. Really? And can right. you trace this back to anything? I can't. You no, can't. Wow. I, I don't. I mean, I've, I've, I've spent a great deal of, of my life um, doing things like camping and enjoying the great outdoors, so I, I really don't know when it was that I contracted Lyme. Um, but the other thing that is really important for your listeners to understand is that um, there also is literature supporting that Lyme can be transmitted from an infected mother to her baby in the womb. Mm. So federal health authorities, Canadian federal health authorities, back in 1988, they actually acknowledged this. There's a bulletin which was sent out through their channels 
um, sharing that transplacental transmission or mother-to-baby transmission of Lyme disease had been documented. So that is something that is of great concern to myself as after I was diagnosed with Lyme disease, um, I retrospectively went back to each of my three daughters who had been sick from birth, and we found out that they had Lyme disease as well. Oh, my. Again, without um, a characteristic tick bite or bullseye rash. So this is something that has, has really, uh, as a result of what our family has experienced, and now hearing from Canadians truly all across Canada, every province and territory, um, a big petition that we have on change.org called the Ticking Line Bomb Petition has over 85,000 signatures. Canadians saying similar things. We're concerned um, that Lyme disease goes beyond um, an acute tick bite, um, but there's, there's many more issues that need to be covered, including mother-to-baby transmission, concerns of blood supply safety, uh, chronic persistent infection, um, there's, there's many, many things here that need to be addressed. But certainly, now that Lyme disease is coming to the forefront in the public eye, I believe uh, that these issues will be addressed and uh, we can start getting action from our you know, provincial and federal government uh, and regulatory health bodies as and, well. And once you, once you get Lyme disease, are, are, are you, do you rid yourself of it or do you always live with it? I think it really depends on if... If the, if the infection is caught early, if it's caught and treated early, there's very good outcomes and um, it's curable. But if, if, if it's caught late and left, you know, to, to disseminate throughout the body, um, it can cause some serious symptoms. Um, there's question whether it's persistence of infection or other things going on. Um, certainly, the bacteria has been known to persist um, despite antibiotic treatment that has been uh, clearly published in the in the in the literature. Um, that's an excellent question. We need more research to take c- closer look at people who are um, dealing with persistent ongoing symptoms following treatment. Um, and the same type of research is need needs to be done in Canada for mother to baby transmission, so we can have a better understanding of what is going on there. Because obviously, a newborn that's infected from birth is not going to be have been bitten by a tick. Mm. Or have a bullseye rash. So how did you realize you had it? I had been sick for 15 years. Um, I was an eMERGE nurse and uh, I worked at Trillium um, Healthcare uh, in Mississauga and um, I had all kinds of weird symptoms. I had neurological symptoms, I had cardiac cardiac symptoms, palpitations. I was forgetting my children's birthdays so my memory was 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 going off. I thought I had like early onset dementia. Seriously, hmm. um, my foot would drag when I walked. Um, there were all kinds of weird symptoms that were affecting, and I had a lot of pain in my muscles um, and in certain parts of my body that would come and go with migratory pain. So, I literally saw every um, healthcare specialist that you can think of, from cardiology to infectious disease and no one guessed and no one guessed Lyme disease really nobody considered it and I didn't consider it as a nurse because I didn't remember a tick bite and how long did this happen for you how long ago did this happen for you Um, I was diagnosed in 2015 and uh, finally after 15 years of of going through the healthcare system and costing our healthcare system extraordinary amounts of money to get testing and you know try and figure out what was Mm. going on and then I finally did have a positive test for Lyme disease, and that's when my journey began. And uh, shortly thereafter, started 
advocacy work. So how long um, did you figure you had the disease for? Uh, I would say at least 15 years. Wow. I had, because I had been struggling with these, these symptoms for at least 15 years um, prior to my diagnosis. And that was prior to all three of my children being born. So now you so, had it for 15 years and you've been treated. How is life for you now? Well, there was significant improvement with treatment. And I would say one of the, one of the, the most, <laughs> yeah, just, just remembering back to when I first started that treatment, I felt like, oh my gosh, I can remember things again. Like I truly had memory issues and that there was incredible improvement. Um, another thing that I had was terrible, terrible fatigue, extreme exhaustion, and uh, that improved as well. So, you know, certainly um, with appropriate treatment, um, I'm doing much better. And, uh, you know, n- not everything is perfect, but uh, certainly uh, I'm able to, to do what I'm doing now with advocacy work and uh, continuing to move forward. Um, one other thing I would like to share is that we recently met uh, last Thursday with um, the Honourable Minister of Health, Christine Elliott, myself and some other colleagues, as well as some medical profession, other medical professionals, and, um, you know, speaking to her about the importance of uh, the province taking Lyme disease seriously. And uh, I'm really impressed by um, Minister Elliott's leadership on this matter and uh, looking forward to the next steps that she's going to take to address all these issues that we've uh, discussed today. Uh, so is it possible, as with you, that you've been bitten a long time ago and you're feeling these symptoms and continuing, persisting, and not even knowing that you have this disease? I mean, did you just eventually have a test for Lyme? How did you get to that point? It was actually really funny. It was my family doctor. Well, not funny, but it was my family doctor. I had gone back to her with all these test results from all these specialists, MRIs, CTs, ultrasounds, blood work, you name it, and it was all negative. Mm. And she sat me down in her office and she said, Sue, there's nothing more I can do for you except I recommend that you take medication for depression because maybe, you know, you have anxiety that's causing you potentially right. to be, you know, thinking that this is what, you know, all these weird symptoms are, you know, or could be due to anxiety and depression. And I sat in her office and I wept and I said, there is something seriously wrong with me. Is there anything else you can possibly think of that this could be? And that's when she said, there is a lot of hype in the media about Lyme disease. Wow. Have you been tested for Lyme? And I said, no. And I didn't even really know back in 2015 what Lyme disease was. Mm. So I got tested um, my test came back positive, and that, it, it just, it was shocking, right? And at the same time it was shocking, it was probably one of the most important days of my life because I finally had an answer to what I was dealing with um, and, you know, the ability to, to, to start moving forward. Um, now, I was one of the lucky ones. I would, you know, say, quote, unquote, lucky ones because my test was positive, Um there's a lot of issues right now with the testing in Canada, uh, not being sensitive enough to pick up Lyme, especially in the early, early stages of Lyme disease, but also concerns about later stages of Lyme. So, you know, there's, there's a, there are a lot of issues and concerns that uh, need to be addressed. Uh, really quickly, we're short on time, Sue. Advice to people in regard to all of this. What's the message? The message is, you know your body the best. So number one, 
if you are bitten by a tick, please go and see your family doctor or healthcare practitioner right away. Um, realize that there's, mul- there's, there's different treatment guidelines available for Lyme disease. They're all listed on the Government of Canada uh, website. We certainly recommend the ILADS treatment guidelines. And thirdly, do not give up. Do not lose hope. And remember that there are supports and resources around you to assist you um, to, to get back to health. Sue Faber has been with us, registered nurse, co-founder of Lime Hope, limehope.ca to find out more. Sue, thanks so much for sharing your experience with us, uh, and congratulations on the advocacy, and good luck with your own health moving forward. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Ottawa says that it's open to proposals for a BC refinery amid rising gas prices. Is this the same government that can't get a pipeline built? Uh, This is out of the Canadian press. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says Ottawa is open to proposals from the private sector for a refinery. And of all places, British Columbia, the green capital of the country, as a public inquiry into the province's soaring gas prices reviews possible solutions. The Prime Minister says he knows B.C. residents are struggling and the federal government is open to ideas that would make life more affordable for Canadians. They're open to everything. They just don't do anything. Uh, here's the quote. Uh, We're always open to seeing what the private sector proposes, what business cases are out there. We believe in getting things done the right way, and we're going to work with people to find solutions to make sure that people can afford their weekly bills. Blah, 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 blah. Here's the other weird uh, 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 point in all of this. Uh, The Premier, Premier Horgan of British Columbia... And we certainly know where he has been in regard to the pipeline, Premier John Horgan. He said Thursday that while the province wants a transition away from fossil fuel dependence, that transition should be aided by more refined product to give BC drivers relief. I don't know how you can suck and blow at the same time. When have you heard Premier Horgan out of B.C. say the province wants a transition away from fossil fuel dependence? It should be aided by more refined product, by more fossil fuels. I I, I just I can't believe what I'm hearing. And it's got to be impossible for Canadians to decode what the heck is going on or what direction this government is going in. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, Senior Petroleum Analyst, uh, gas, uh, GasPriceWizard.com, and he is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. <laughs> Good to be here, Scott. Boy, oh boy. So we talked many times over the years, Dan, about the need for more refining capacity in Canada. Um, and, and I remember you saying way back when, regulations make it impossible for companies that want to do this and now the prime minister wants to build a refinery in beautiful british columbia yeah i mean either they have uh, completely lost uh, their marbles or they're dishonest and phony both horgan it's populism know, on the left is it not dan it's it's ridiculousness on the left and i'm i'm doing uh, everything i can to expose it uh, because it is total hypocrisy it's 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 a bloody lie and they know it and they've got themselves in a pickle because they know that their regulatory uh, mischief, uh, environmental and otherwise, has led to pipelines being blocked, and it's also led to let's just deconstruct it. It's also led to the energy sector wobbling so badly that no one wants to buy a Canadian refinery, much much less spend billions of dollars in ten years 
to put one in effect. But here's what Mr. Horgan and Mr. Trudeau have in common. Uh, not only is Mr. Horgan not uh, willing to uh, have an inquiry as to how his taxes and, more importantly, his government and previous governments have uh, larded on uh, regulations to make clean gas, forcing Alberta and, and uh, Washington uh, state refineries to make boutique gasoline, which is why prices are so much higher there. You also have a federal government saying, hey, guess what? We're going to have a clean fuel standard. We're going to do the same thing as British Columbia. We're going to add 8 to 16 cents a litre to the cost of gasoline. So, you know, if people really want to uh, understand what's happening here, these guys are, for their and, and for their friends on the left, or whoever they are, willing to sell you a message which is absolute bunk. And, I, you know, I'll put my 20, 30, 40 years in that Liberal Party and as a member of Parliament and as a, a Privy Councillor to the test. Anybody who wants to challenge me in the Liberal Party today, please come out and do it, because your policies, especially with the Clean Fuel Standard Act, which is about to be uh, gazetted, or at least uh, regulations are about to call it this summer, if anything, will have uh, the uh, the effect of driving refineries out of Canada. Uh, by the way, British Columbia has a re- two refineries. One of them's up for sale. No one wants to buy it. It's up in Prince George. I just literally finished an interview with a, a station there, and they're they're puzzled. Why would the Prime Minister join John Horgan, who is v- extremely dishonest about this, uh, in saying that, uh, oh, well, you know, uh, we can build a pipeline and resolve the problem, uh, or we build a refinery yeah. and we can resolve the problem. This is a government that opposes pipelines. How are you going to get your product from a refinery to the rest of the world. If yeah. you're banning ships and you're <laughs> banning pipelines... Well, that's what makes absolutely no sense in this. All you no, have to do is look at the, the Prime Minister's performance on the pipeline. So what is he going to do now? Invite companies to build a refinery and then bail it out and buy it when they decide to pick up and move because they can't get anywhere because of regulations. So now we're going to own a phantom pipeline and a phantom refinery? Well, I, I think they're really calculating. There's a lot of very stupid people in Canada. And we're going to see how many stupid people there are who vote uh, NDP or vote uh, Green or vote Bloc or vote Liberal uh, and, and try to pull this off. They know full well that their interest is in that. By the way, after the election, uh, consider the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion dead and gone. Because if the unless Trudeau forms a majority and no one's saying that's going to happen, he has to get in bed with the Greens and the NDP and the Bloc, uh, whose first item of business will be to kill that pipeline. So unless he doesn't want to form government and he wants to give it to Andrew Scheer, which uh, will, I think, cause those other three parties to have heart failure and be apoplectic, uh, it's likely that that uh, pipeline itself will be gone. And we have a far more serious problem on our hands. So it's cute. It's trendy. It's uh, it's the thing to say. And I've been fighting a lot of... Uh, uh, no, Dan. Cute and tr- cute and trendy is stopping the pipeline. Cute and yeah. trendy is not building a refinery. I mean, it yeah. just seems absolutely bizarre. And well, here's the other thing: why why even go there? Why even why mention you, this? If the right mind would put out ten billion dollars for a project that takes over ten years to build, knowing full well that the province, Mr. Horgan's government, has put in place a regulation that says by 2040. We know uh, internal combustion engines will be allowed. That's no diesel, no uh, uh, no uh, no gasoline engines. Uh, vehicles will be allowed to be sold in that province. So, what are you building the pipe? What are you building the refinery for? You block the pipeline, which would bring down uh, capacity. Uh, Edmonton's got plenty of gasoline to send down. The problem is that they keep resisting this pipeline, pushing it back. And I just want people to understand what the Trans Mountain Pipeline is about. Because obviously the, pre- the Prime Minister is clued out as well. He could have actually mentioned this without having to talk about refineries. 
the main pipeline, the new and the controversial one, is going to bring in 560,000 barrels down and ship it to the rest of the world so we get real real uh, value for our oil. The existing pipeline will be expanded by 50,000 barrels a day to bring down potential gasoline, light fuel, diesel, the kind of stuff that uh, uh, British Columbia desperately needs and for which uh, uh, it's found it's not been able to get access to unless, of course, they're prepared to pay it for by rail, which is more expensive, or bringing in from the United States. So, I mean, people really have to understand what the pipeline is about. And about a year and a half ago, not even quite a year ago, I went on one of your sister stations uh, in um, uh, in British Columbia right after the premier who said, oh, no, the Trans Mountain Pipeline isn't about uh, expanding the existing line. It's all about uh, bringing bitumen down in and sending it to the rest of the world. So if your prime premier is either clued out or is dishonest, uh, then, you know, I would take everything that man says with forked tongue. And, and I would ditto for the prime minister as well for even coming close to this because his policies have done nothing but ruin the energy sector in Canada and as a result caused major uh, you know, uh, revenue problems for his government. It's one of the main reasons why you're not just, you don't just have a spending problem in Canada, you have a significant revenue problem. Horgan said Thursday that while the province wants to transition away from fossil fuel dependence, that transition <laughs> should be aided by more refined product to give BC drivers a relief. Did they not see this coming? No, this is a dishonest premier who basically didn't want... Look, he's got a, a commission. The British, uh, the British Columbia Utilities Commission is looking into gas prices. But the premier said... Which are going to reveal it's all taxes. He doesn't want to talk. You can't talk yeah. about taxes because we know what they are. Do we, Mr. Horgan, do we know the fact that you just larded on uh, 1.6 cents a litre just a few weeks ago uh, on July the 1st, that your government contributed another 2.22 cents a litre with respect to adding to the carbon tax? And does, do they not realize the Clean Fuel Standards Act and the British Columbia low carbon uh, requirement basically forces uh, suppliers, distributors, refiners in that province to add another 8 to 15 cents a litre? Now, I've said this a thousand times, but the trendy media over there doesn't want to talk about it, so I don't mind mentioning to people. Uh, you know, <laughs> I predicted the major gas price spike back in May, and I did that for a number of stations in D.C. back in March. They took all my work, uh, all my advice, I'm correct in terms of where prices go up and down every single day. I've been doing it for 20 years. But they don't like the fact that what I'm saying is contributing to that is because of the situation BC finds itself in. It's not refineries. It's blocking a pipeline that was mm. damn well built by now that could have probably averted at least 10 to 15 cents a litre and helped uh, you know consumers in that province. But nope, can't talk about that. It's This Horgan guy reminds me of the old... Uh, Hogan's Heroes, uh, Schultz. Uh, I've Hogan? Nothing, nothing. Yes. I mean, this guy's nuts. And I, you know, honest to God. So I, how, how is the Green Party, who is propping up his government, how are they responding to him wanting to build another refinery? Well, they want that. But that's a little bit like saying, hey, we don't want to see... Why do the, gr- the Greens want a refinery? Well, yeah, that's, their, that's been their proposal for some time. That's, they're all jumping in on the same narrative, you know, that build a refinery. Because anybody, no one out there seems to understand how a refinery works. And you keep changing the regulations and changing the goalposts and how they have to produce, then they're not going to produce. They're going to sell. And that's a very significant danger for a lot of refineries here in Canada. By the way, just go up the street to uh, Oakville and ask what happened in 2004 when the federal government, my trendy federal government, and I told them not to do this as a member of parliament, decided to change sulfur regulations on gasoline, all which we want, but to do it a year or two ahead of the Americans. In other words, get ahead of the market. They basically had Petro-Canada say, all right, we'll uh, get a product from Montreal, we'll get it from somewhere else, you can pay the extra two or three cents a litre, we're shutting that damn plant down. 
And that has been a permanent cost to the price of gasoline, whether people realize it or yeah, not. Yeah. So when Prime Minister Trudeau goes out and says he's worried about affordability, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, he's it, it, he's just piling it on, and I'm the guy to call call it off. I, I, I call these things because I know that these guys don't know what they're talking about, couldn't give a rat's touche about what is happening with energy and uh, energy affordability. And it's for that reason alone uh, that I think uh, your listeners really have to wake up. And if they, uh, if they want to put an X beside the Liberal candidate's name uh, and are worried about the price and the cost of living, they only have themselves to blame. Why would the, as I started to mention earlier, why would the Prime Minister even go here? All he's going to do is tick off the people who are supporting him, and the people who are not aren't going to believe a word that he says. So again, especially after the pipeline fiasco, uh, who, why would you even say, hey, let's build a refinery? Like, what's to gain from that for him well, politically? Well, the of most people who don't understand this industry at all and don't understand the problem, it's a trendy lefty thing to say. But it does suggest to me that this is a signal, if there ever was one, that uh, Mr. Trudeau and the Greens are going to be sitting down together right after the election and forming a government. So, you know, and I think he's sort of anticipating that he's got to make, you know, campaign on the far left, on the extreme because apparently some people like extreme stuff that, you know, there are 10% of voters out there who might be considered extreme. You need those 10% to form a government. So he's not going to let them get it. He's going to try to do what he can to mitigate it. But it's uh, it's setting us up for some very dangerous policies. And as I said, the sleeper issue is the clean fuel standards here in Canada. Uh, you saw Andrew Shearer a couple of weeks ago coming out uh, as a conservative leader with this stuff about uh, that the new Clean Fuel Standards Act will add four cents a litre to the price of gasoline. He's wrong. It's far higher than that. And it's going to start in 2022, just at the same time we're going to start to see, uh, again, multiple increases uh, uh, to the cost of gasoline and to other fossil fuels as a result of the federal government ratcheting up its uh, goal to meet the $50 a ton uh, mark. By the way, if the Greens do form a government with <laughs> the federal Liberals, uh, with uh, the help of the NDP, what's left of them, and of course uh, the bloc, uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, $100 a ton. In other words, not only will you be paying an extra $0.11 cents a litre for by 2022 for gasoline. The Clean Fuel Standards Act should add another six or seven cents a litre, so that brings up to 17 cents. And then going to $100 a ton, I would expect by 2028, I know it sounds like it's far away, yeah. far out at this point. You're probably looking at 25 cents a litre. It's going to be fascinating so when 10 years from now we find ourselves exactly in the same place that we are now. Well, we will, but you can always remember this election, and people should be very careful because they can't afford the policies of the Liberals, of the NDP, the Green, and of course the Bloc. So the the Green wants a refinery in British yeah. Columbia. Doesn't that doesn't that go in the face of what they're promoting? No, uh, I think uh, their leader Elizabeth May said, "Oh, it'd be a great thing if we uh, we all the oil we have in this Canada be ref- uh, we produce in this country right, be refined." Right. Yeah. Well, we go to twelve million. So, is that why do you is that why you think the prime minister is is doing this is to yeah. is to side with the Greens or or get that vote? I think he wants to uh, impact that vote before it goes, uh, you know, un, un, uneducatedly towards uh, the, a Green vote for whatever reason. So he's worried the left vote's going to split. Well, he's at 32%. The Conservatives at 36 uh, It's the left that's going to be divided among four parties. And so, I mean, it worked for him in 2015 uh, to campaign hard on the left. That's uh, a smart idea, by the way, because I know from firsthand experience 
that in 2011 we lost badly because we campaigned at the center and everybody wanted to be trendy and go to Jack Layton. And, uh, you know, the, the, the good guy, uh, Quebec, went the same way as well. So there is a sense that, uh, you know, the number of people out there who are, uh, you know, uh, quote-unquote progressive, uh, the facts don't need to get in the way, would like to deny that our country's wealth and reputation, its ability to support uh, social programs, the kind of things that uh, they want to spend are really derived from, uh, you know, our energy sector. And if you continue to uh, rob that, well, then you're going to have to find a cute way out of it. And the cute way is to build a refinery. Listen, we are likely to see refineries leave Canada once the federal government promulgates these uh, Canadian fuel standards. And I wouldn't be surprised to see... Well, if it takes 10 years to build... If it takes two, 10 years to build one, why even go here? Well, no one will go here because of... The, In other words, it'll never get built. Hey, if you can't build a pipeline that creates yeah. zero emissions... So this is all BS. A refinery? Yeah. People wake up, smarten the hell up. Uh, so how is this playing, not only in BC, but hey, Mr. Trudeau wants to build another refinery. How does that play across the country? I don't think it plays at all. I think people find it's a joke and they know that the federal government, along with the BC government, have uh, contributed mightily to the price of fuel. But to those who, you know, think we can ride bicycles in the middle of winter and run our combines on uh, windmills and uh, solar panels uh, to, uh, you know, for our energy sector, for our agriculture sector, for our mining sector... Fill your boots. But, you know, look, there's, there, there is a lot of disinformation going around, uh, and it's, uh, it's certainly not helped by a prime minister who ought to know better. Uh, it's absolutely silly that he's made that comment, but uh, it's, uh, it's the silly season. It's about getting votes, uh, not among reasonable people, but amongst people who I think are on the, on the extreme edge of and have no understanding how this industry operates, much less how an economy runs. Uh, but what does should concern us is not... The government's le- le- you know lurch to the left to get those five to ten percent of uh, extreme radicals uh, out there. It should be that the other sixty percent smarten the hell up. And I said that two or three times now because I think people have got to say if this is what they're given to, it really narrows the field. Uh, anybody who's concerned about being able to make ends meet, put bread and food on the table, keep their jobs, and keep our country strong, uh, whether it's Liberal, NDP, Bloc, or uh, Green. Uh, should uh, should basically consider the fact that they are contributing mightily to policies that are undermining our country and will continue to do so. The world's not going to wait for Canada. We've got to smarten up. Wouldn't the refineries have closed down under the Conservative government, though? Uh, well, they might have, but the gov- I don't think the Conservative government uh, put forth the clean... Wouldn't the Oakville place have closed down during the Conservative regime? I don't think the Conservatives, had they taken my advice, and I'm not sure if they would have at the time, but I'm sure that they would have been aware of the fact that by trying to rush ahead with standards and regulations uh, that could have been met, but by waiting and delaying a year uh, until the U.S. got to the same level, we probably would have kept that plant open. But remember, Scott, really important to know here in Ontario, Shell's plant is up for sale. Hmm. We have another group of environmentalists working their way through Michigan, willing to prepare to shut down the only oil pipeline that provides 80% of all the oil that comes into the province of Ontario. It's called the Line 5 Enbridge. Michigan governor and Michigan attorney general want this, uh, not, do, do not want Enbridge to be able to rebuild that pipeline. Uh, that's on top of the Line 3 pipeline, which has now been delayed for another year. We are in real big trouble in this country, and these folks are walking around, uh, you know, with their heads in the air, uh, thinking that, uh, oh, I just built another pipeline. There's lots of, uh, just built another refinery. Hell, you can't get a pipeline built. How the hell are you going to get a refinery built in an environment where you're telling everybody we don't want any more fossil fuels? It's total hypocrisy, and I go back to what I said at the beginning. It's fundamentally dishonest for anybody to spend a bit of time looking at it. And all under the guise of a climate emergency. (laughs) We're having a climate emergency, Dan, but we want to build another refinery. Can't get a pipeline built. 
but it's the end of the world as we know it. <laughs> it is. I mean, their hair's on fire. Uh, Unbelievable. Uh, yep. You know, hair's on fire, then they jump into the pond. Uh, Dan, uh, thanks so much for the time, as always. Much appreciated. And ahead, it continues to spin. Thank you. Yeah, have a great weekend, Scott. Bye-bye. You too. Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, Senior Petroleum Analyst, GasPriceWizard.com to find out more. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've certainly uh, known what's been happening in regard to pride, uh, past Pride celebrations in the hammer that uh, turned extremely uh, ugly. Uh, with that, protests and such uh, disruption at City Hall yesterday during a uh, attempted police board meeting. Now a provincial watchdog is going to look into the police response to the violence at Pride. Uh, the city's police board is also mulling a separate review to talk more about this and what happened yesterday. Mayor for the City of Hamilton, Fred Eisenberger, is with us, and he's on the line now. Mayor Fred, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Always good to be with you, Scott. Uh, tell us what happened yesterday, Fred. Well, we were uh, planning on having our regular uh, police services board meeting with, uh, obviously, deputations from uh, some of the folks that were uh, involved or concerned about the uh, the Pride events, uh, as, as we all are. And uh, some folks decided to, uh, to do everything they could to disrupt that. So we had to suspend the meeting for a little while. It wasn't very long, actually. Uh, left the room and, uh, you know, obviously uh, gave them an opportunity to settle down. And uh, they didn't and decided to leave. And then we, uh, once that occurred, uh, we were able to get back to the regular business of the police services board. And then uh, had, a, you know, I think a, a good and thorough hearing from some, some of the folks that were concerned. And uh, a statement was made by the uh, board itself on uh, denouncing all uh, hate groups, organizations, or individuals out there that are violent or spewing uh, hate speech. That uh, We denounced them all, and we want to work with everyone to uh, try and tamp that out. And at the same time, uh, commiserate with the, uh, the queer and trans community that uh, obviously were impacted by this violence at the Pride event and then even beyond, uh, you know, currently feeling, feeling fearful and, uh, and, and set upon today. So uh, all of that is uh, certainly not what anyone, anyone wants and we all want to guard against. So what came out of this meeting that was productive? Uh, how do we move forward with this? Well, a number of things happened. Uh, you know, as, as expected, uh, you know, conduct complaints were, were made, and uh, they are now with the Ontario uh, Investigative Police Review Directorate, uh, which is a separate independent uh, uh, directorate set up to overview uh, police conduct throughout the province. And, uh, you know, we certainly welcome uh, that review. And they are going and, to take uh, a look at things. Sorry? And they are going they to are- take a look at this. Yeah, they're going to look at the uh, the conduct of the police and uh, you know issues around uh, the organizations and organizers and how the event came about. Uh, they'll be looking at all of that piece to, to determine uh, whether or not uh, appropriate action was taken to uh, to prevent the, the violence that uh, that occurred there. And then the separate investigations, two two separate complaints on the uh, service complaints, and, and you know they're in the they're in the Police Services Act. Don't ask me to uh, you know. Restate what what it right. exactly it says on the Police Services Act, but basically what it means is it requires the uh, police chief to uh, to do an investigation as well, and uh, report back to to the board and the complainants in terms of what they found. And then you know if if uh, you know the complainant feels that that report isn't satisfactory, they can appeal to the board, and uh, that is happening as well. On top of that, uh, the board decided that uh, that they would be interested in. Some sort of an independent review of the uh, the actions of that day, 
both uh, both uh, you know all all inclusive. So you know all involved. Uh, you know what happened, what occurred, what didn't occur, what should have occurred, what sh- what did occur, and uh, and have that uh, independent review also done over over and above all of that. And we don't quite know what that's going to look like, but uh, the uh, we three members of the board are going to take that on as a, a challenge to come back with a recommendation as to what, what it might look like, what it might cost, and uh, how it would uh, would actually benefit the person. What was the explanation police gave to you for their handling of the festival when you chatted about this? Uh, were they slow to respond? How did they respond to that question? Uh, so I'm, uh, you know, the response has been uh, consistently that uh, they were they were there already uh, prepared to respond in two locations, uh, one at City Hall and the other one at uh, Gage Park. Uh, they had they were specifically asked not to have uniformed police officers present at the event. I think the characterization has been that uh, somehow people have made an assumption that uh, that there was some animus about that, and that uh, you know as a result they didn't respond as quickly as they uh, should have. Uh, I don't believe that at all, and uh, certainly that's something that's something that the police chief has addressed on many occasions. But people uh, keep making interpretations on that, uh, you know, as they will. But uh, the reality is that we're uh, we're all interested in, as the police are, to you know, stemming violence and protecting people and property in our community, no matter where it is. And uh, so I, I, you know, my, everything that I know uh, is that the police were ready uh, to respond and did respond. Uh, to the to the activities that were happening now people can debate uh, you know their satisfaction or dissatisfaction with that uh, you know yeah, yeah I think you have to remember that uh, police are responding to active on at the moment things and uh, you know their uh, their ability to uh, to have Intel is uh, is limited but still have it and if that changes then they have to react react to those changes and I you know, I recall the complaints that uh, were lodged against the police when the uh, the anarchists roamed through Lock Street, and uh, hmm. there was consternation about the police response then. And you know, I think uh, I supported their response. I think they did a you know a yeoman's job of uh, managing the situation given the changing dynamics, and were able to arrest most, if not all, of the uh, participants uh, shortly thereafter. So. Uh, you know what? Policing is a difficult task, and um, you know I'm, I, I appreciate the the work that they do out there. And you know every instance and every issue is different, and uh, their circumstances change, and they have to be able to be ready to be able to react to all of that. And in my in my opinion, they were ready ready and able to react, and uh, and did. Uh, we, we've all seen the video and what happened and what went down there, and, and all would agree, I'm sure it's it's pretty disgusting what what transpired there. Uh, that being said, it appears these causes are being overshadowed by the extremes. You brought up the anarchists on on, on Lock Street, and the same organizations seem to be affiliated with this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and chants yesterday, and and people showing up at your home to protest. Ha- has this movement been hijacked by extremists, by anarchists, whether it's anarchists on the left or or the alt right? I mean, it seems we forgot about the LGP, LGBT community here, and it's about extremism we're talking about. Well, I think uh, I think in some respects they've uh, they've attached themselves to the uh, the pride event or the queer and trans community, and uh, you know I think uh, it's it's to the detriment of uh, of their cause for sure, and it's certainly not, uh, uh, and, and it's helping them cause and create the kind of mayhem that they've been able to generate. Now, 
Uh, I, you know, I think there's a, a lot of finger pointing going on, and uh, you know, I think what we should be doing is uh, sitting down and, uh, and and doing everything we can, as we have been in the past, working with the queer and trans community to ensure that they have a safe and secure place in our community that uh, they're not set upon, and that, and that there are policies in place to actually protect, protect against any discrimination or mm-hmm. violence or any any of those kinds of works. And what we're seeing is that some of the Violent elements of uh, of these organizations, and there's a multitude of them, uh, are taking hold of the issue and really crowding out what uh, we should, which what we should be all talking about, which is stamping out hate on one mm-hmm. side, and uh, protecting the queer and trans community and, and and any other minorities that are being set upon in terms of the the hate groups that are out there. And so that's a that's a dialogue that we're going to continue to have. Uh, there, there's a societal problem here. This is not. Uh, necessarily unique to Hamilton uh, that doesn't doesn't make it any better for Hamilton but the reality is these kinds of events are happening uh, across the country and I think we need to have a pretty strong and uh, you know ongoing dialogue about how we're going to deal with these in the future are you confident any of these reports uh, will calm the extremists or the anarchists on these issues I mean at the end of the day who, who will this appease well I'm, I'm hopeful that that uh, the reasonable, peace-loving people in the queer and trans community will continue to come to the table and have open and respectful dialogue, and that we, uh, you know, align our forces against the the extreme elements in these groups that are really looking to create uh, upset and mayhem and violence and uh, are really railing against, uh, you know, some of the institutions that are out there to protect against uh, people that uh, are, are setting upon minorities. And so I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that we get back to the table with some positive dialogue and really start working on what we should be combating, which is all of these hate groups that are actually creating the kind of mayhem that we're seeing today, not in the interest of the, the queer and trans community, I don't believe, but uh, in their own interest to get, uh, get attention and, and drive their agenda. Uh, we were talking in the uh, in the newsroom yesterday uh, about this going on and and listening to the audio of the meeting and such from our reporter that was down there, um, and you know we were we were talking about the scenario and we couldn't think of uh, of a mayor who has reached out more to this community than you have uh, as mayor. Um, do, are you hurt when when? when that message is hijacked by anarchists and they show up at your home and they start chanting the things that they chanted at you yesterday, I mean, it just, you just got to shake your head at that stuff. How, how does well, it make you feel personally? Because it, it, it seems as if they're personally attacking you. Yeah, it's unsettling for sure. I mean, it uh, certainly doesn't make me happy, but uh, I'm, I'm determined that, uh, you know, given, given the, the investigations that are going on, Let's clear the air on, on this. Uh, we have had great relationships with the queer and trans community. Uh, we have a trans protocol that's uh, close to finalizing its development. Uh, the police have got a trans protocol uh, sorted out. Uh, we've had uh, ongoing uh, training uh, happening at the city of Hamilton. We've uh, supported the, the pride flag, which I, I can tell you, uh, you know, there's a, a kind of a mixed view on whether or not that flag should or should not have stayed up. In my view, I, I think I was speaking on behalf of most of the uh, the quiet, peaceful, uh, queer and trans community that, uh, that uh, you know, this flag is well-earned and uh, didn't want to give it up. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that we uh, aren't, aren't, you know, trying just to create conflict. Uh, you know, that doesn't help the situation. What we need to do is uh, fight those that uh, want to create conflicts and get to the table with others 
that want to come up with solutions and, uh, and a positive move forward. Over and above what happened at Pride and the investigation that's going on um, uh, because of that, uh, this still doesn't change too much about what happens on the weekend in the forecourt at City Hall. Uh, are, you, are you concerned about that moving forward and, and keeping that secure? Sure. And, uh, you know, it's a, again, it's a complex issue. We've, uh, we've explored a number of different options. Uh, draft proposal, I have to remind everyone, uh, this was, a, was really kind of a quick, uh, quick starter on, uh, you know, some information that our staff put together to come up with some things that we might want to disallow at the, uh, at the, uh, the forecourt. But, uh, you know, obviously we want also to be, uh, be uh, able for people that under the guise of free speech to be able to, uh, to protest and do the things that they have to do as long as it's peaceful and not hateful to, uh, to others. Now, there, there are very strict definitions of what a hate crime is, and you know, you'll have to talk to the police in terms of where that line is. And, you know, I, I'm not appreciative of the, uh, of the kind of uh, anti-immigration, anti-newcomer anti, uh, kind of approach that I hear from uh, some of the folks that are protesting there. Hmm. But the reality is they have a different opinion about what their country ought to be doing. And, uh, you know, I think that's, uh, that's something we're going to have to kind of work through to ensure that uh, we don't thwart people's ability to have a different opinion as long as it's not hurting anyone else. Is there any way, and, and perhaps this is a very naive suggestion, but is there any way, obviously, these two groups, extremist ends of this, these groups, do not get along? There's conflict whenever they come together. Is there any way to say, well, you get it Saturday, you get it Friday, or and vice versa, whatever, alternating weekends, what have you? Or is that invading and free, invading on free speech? And simply, well, you, and simply I mean, use the excuse that, you know what, it's clear that you people cannot demonstrate or rally together. So we have to do it this way for, for, for security reasons. Yeah. Well, so that, that's the approach that police have already taken, uh, just to ensure that there's, uh, you know, no violence and no crossover. So they've created a safe space in the middle in the forecourt and uh, have kept the groups apart, which is essentially what, uh, what they've been doing all along. But, you know, we have to we have to come to terms with, uh, you know, what kind of level of uh, protest crosses the line. And yeah. uh, that's really the area that uh, we want to focus on. We don't want to punish anyone for being in the forecourt. We have many, many great events, uh, you know, of all kinds of different ethnicities and mm-hmm. all kinds of different religious uh, backgrounds, peace rallies, all kinds of things happening in the forecourt. And, uh, you know, whether some people agree or disagree with them, uh, you know, is really immaterial as long as they're nonviolent and not, uh, not hate-oriented, uh, looking to harm uh, someone else. So I think we have to define where that line is and then uh, take steps to actually prevent that from happening in our forecourt. Beyond that, we want to make sure that, that you know, our public spaces are open to all peace-loving, free-thinking, uh, non-harmful, non-violent individuals that just want to use that space for, uh, for either whether protest or demonstration or just to have an event to come together and celebrate whatever they want to celebrate. Uh, uh, we don't want to stop that. We don't want to end that. And I, don't, uh, I, I really don't hope that, uh, that we, we shut down our forecourt just because, uh, you know, a couple of you know, a strange, uh, you know, uh, you know idea people uh, actually come to the, the court and, uh, and, and make protests that we don't like. Uh, are you worried that uh, once a security plan is put in place, I mean, there are there there, there are those there that don't give a rat's rear end about the message. They wanna they mm-hmm. wanna be anarchists. They wanna to, to raise heck. So uh, right. at the end of the day, you know, you put the police up through the middle and each side on 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 the other. 
Um, it just takes one person, as we saw before, to swing something and then boom, you know, the whole powder keg explodes. Uh, so right. in the end, it, it appears we will what the answer is here is more law enforcement, more security. And the second it gets out of hand, it's nipped in the bud. But how do you stop right. that from escalating the whole event? Yeah, well, I mean, good question. And uh, you know what? My, my hope is that, uh, you know, we, uh, we stand together as a community against the kind of, uh, you know, hate and uh, discrimination that some people are espousing. And uh, that that uh, collective weight will, uh, will cause them to kind of rethink their positions and maybe back out of, uh, you know, their violent demonstrations of this, uh, this group. Can we prevent violence in all instances, uh, you know, in any circumstance around our community? Uh, I wish that we were, uh, 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 I wish we had that ability. Uh, and the reality is we, uh, we can't monitor every street corner and every uh, location, uh, you know, throughout the city in terms of, uh, you know, violence. We can only respond as quickly as possible to try and prevent uh, violence to people or property. And so I would say uh, we, we're going to have to create that balancing act. And uh, more and more, uh, we're, we're li- living in a, in a world where more security is required. And so we're beefing up and bumping up the uh, security requirements at uh, certainly at City Hall in terms of uh, the cameras that are already there to ensure that they're of a quality that will allow uh, police or anyone else to lay charges of criminal action taking place. Currently, that isn't the case, and that, uh, that I think we need to fix that. And, uh, and then let the, uh, the police and the law deal with criminality wherever it happens. And uh, if that's happening in the forecourt of the city of Hamilton, then we expect that... Uh, that the law will uh, take hold and that the courts will uphold, uh, you know, whatever charges are laid. A provincial watchdog is going to look into the police response into the violence at Pride. The city's police board also mulls, uh, mulling over a separate review. Mayor uh, Fred Eisenberger for the city of Hamilton has been with us. Mayor Fred, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Scott, thank you. And, uh, you know, I reiterate that, uh, you know, the Hamilton for All campaign, I think, is, uh, is ongoing. I was happy to bring it to the city of Hamilton. And uh, in my view, uh, we need to ensure that all of our citizens are able to uh, live in a safe and nonviolent, uh, nonviolent way in our community. And that includes the, uh, the queer and trans community as well and, uh, and any other minorities that are being set upon. Well said. Thanks, Fred. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.